We're going to continue to worship the Lord this morning with our gifts and our tithes and our offerings. And just once again, I want to say, like, it's awesome what God's doing here. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're growing in the summer, which is the craziest thing that's ever happened in my entire... Well, we had a baby once, twice, so that was pretty crazy. But other than that, this is so cool what Jesus is doing, that he provided this place for us, and that what he's doing in the lives of the people here is just awesome. So thank you so much for your support of what God's doing here. And God, as we give back to you this morning, we're so grateful first for what you've done for us, Jesus, and that you've given to us. And as we give back to you, it's because we want to see you do even more. And so, Jesus, we pray for our own church, God, this, this family that we have here, that you continue to pour yourself out, God, that you would continue to use us to, to reach people who are far from you, who are hurting, who are broken, who need a touch from you. God, that's what we're here for. It's what we want. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, if you're a guest here today, thank you so much for being here with us. We recognize there's a lot of things you could have done on a July Sunday with beautiful weather in Michigan, but you chose to be here, and we're so grateful for that. In the seat back in front of you, there are some communication cards. We'd love to have you fill one of those out, turn it in. We have a no-hassle guarantee. We're not going to spam you. Add it to mailing list. You won't get credit card offers, anything like that. I just want to be able to send you an email this week saying, Welcome to Radiant Church, and see if there's anything that we can do for you. You can turn that in at the information table on your way out, and we have a free Radiant t-shirt for you as a way to say thanks again. And also today we have our Next Steps Discover class. If you've wanted to know what God made you to do, one of the best ways that you can figure that out is to figure out how God made you. He gave you a personality, he's given you spiritual gifts, and all of these are, are a part of your design to help reveal what it is God's called you to do in life. So if you want to know about that, uh, you can go to our Next Steps table right after service lets out, and they can get you back to, we have a little conference room, and Sybil's going to be teaching that class back there. It's a lot of fun. You won't regret going to it. Um, and then also, well, you know, that's it. Then also, turn to Luke chapter 5. How's that for a transition? So uh, we're getting ready. I think it's about six weeks now until we welcome baby number three into the world, and we're super excited about that. And it reminds me, it makes me think back to the days before we had kids. And there are two things that I definitely was before we had any kids. And that was, I was rich and I was well-rested. No. no, actually, I was an expert on parenting before I had any kids. Like we all were, right? Remember that? Like, they just don't know how to discipline their child. Or maybe if they loved them at home, they wouldn't act out in this way. You guys remember thinking, like, how smug and self-righteous we were before we had kids? Yeah, <laughs> so no. and I still love that when your kids are acting up out in public and you see the young people without kids, you're like, oh, we'll never be parents like that. And I'm like, oh, just you wait. I cannot wait till you have kids. I hope I'm around when you have kids. Because love takes no delight in stuff like that, right? But the other thing that I was, was not only was I an expert, but I had no clue what life would be like when I had kids. This was my anticipation of it. I thought when we have kids, when, when Eason came into the world and Ann and I became parents for the first time, I thought life was pretty much just going to go on as usual. We were just going to have this super cute little cuddly baby that came along with us. And it, like, our life was going to be complete. We were going to have so much unconditional love from this child. And we we're going to have a sense of purpose. We felt like they were going to grow up and they were going to we like, show what awesome, wise parents we were. Like, I didn't think that my life was going to change. I just thought the baby comes along and just joins me and, like, you know, just hold the baby and do everything else I always did before. Well, it turns out that's not what parenting is like at all. Because when I became a parent, I started to bug out real fast. I still remember it was about 11.30 midnight when Anna started having the first contractions. 
It's like, okay, so, you know, that night there's no sleep, get to the hospital. Uh, Eason comes out, we're all like, oh, this is the best thing ever, and then he's crying, and then he's still crying, and doesn't stop crying, and I'm like, this isn't, like, this must be Anna's parenting. Somehow he's sensing <laughs> angst from her, and it's causing this to happen. It's certainly not me. And so the baby kind of does its thing, and then that first night comes. We haven't slept because there was contractions and labor all the night before. So now it's the first night that we have our baby, right? And we think, you know, the baby will wake up every three, four hours, feed it for 15 minutes, goes back to sleep. Like, I was so stupid. I just had no clue. So Ethan, he just screamed. It's amazing how you can be that big and scream louder than anything else on the face of the earth. And so he's just screaming, and it turns out, like, they don't know how to eat real well right when they're born, so there's frustration on all parts. And then it takes them 45 minutes to eat, and that's like, okay, and then it takes me 45 minutes to change his diaper after that, because I'd never done that before, and I'm terrible at it. And so then an hour and a half after he wakes up and starts feeding, it's okay, let's try to get him rocking him back to sleep, and then you put him down. And you kind of go sit in the dad chair in the hospital room, and then and like the whole thing starts all over again. So that's night number two for us without sleep. Same thing happens the next day. All the family, friends are coming to visit us, so there's no sleep, and you know, we're starting to crack up a little bit. And then that second night, which is the third night without sleep, like he's still crying. I'm crying at this point. <laughs> And I remember telling Anna, I had this realization that dawned on me, and I told Anna, and she will vouch for this, I looked at her and said, I'm going to die. <laughs> like, like, I'm not going home from the hospital. <laughs> like, I was convinced in my heart of hearts that I was never going to sleep again, and that I was going to die there in that hospital, and someone else was going to have to raise my child. Because I had no, no idea what life, what my new life was going to be like once I actually became a parent. Now, there's a lot of awesome things about it. Like, there is something about holding your child. There's a part of your heart that wakes up. When that little gray alien baby came out and his face is all scrunched up and head is all misshapen and everything, everybody else can objectively look at it and say, that's not beautiful. Like that. And I'm like, oh, oh my God. I've never seen anything so beautiful in my life. And, you know, I'm trying not to cry because that's not what I do. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And, and, like, and a part of my heart woke up and a part of my heart loved that had never loved before. And there's so much joy that comes along from that. And yesterday, taking a nature walk in the woods, getting bitten by mosquitoes, collecting hickory nuts with my kids, was like the highlight of my day. Because I get to spend time with them. There's a relationship that's been developed with my kids. I love them. They love me most of the time. And so it's just awesome, this new life that I have. But I had no clue what the sacrifice was going to be in the life that I was entering into. But I also couldn't comprehend the blessings that were going to come in the new life that I was entering into as a parent. And so my question for you is, have you ever had that kind of experience in your new life with Jesus? Did you know what it was going to be like when you decided, Jesus, I'm going to follow after you? You probably had some idea. You might have thought, I'm just going to continue on with life basically as normal. I got little sweet baby Jesus on my hip and he's going around with me. <laughs> but then you found out the reality of life following Jesus was very different from what it was that you joined up for. You found out that the sacrifice of following Jesus was maybe greater than what you anticipated. But you also find out that the blessing 
that comes from a life following Jesus is beyond anything you ever could have expected. When Jesus called Levi, which is what we talked about last week, he didn't know what he was getting into. He just knew that God came to him and he heard God call him to repent from his sins, to reorient his life so that he was going to leave everything else behind and he was going to follow after Jesus from this day forward. But he didn't know what that life was going to look like. He didn't know the sacrifice, but he also didn't know the blessing. Jesus hasn't really described any of this yet. He's just said, come and follow me. Come be my disciple. Leave everything else behind. Reorient your life to follow after me. And now as we go farther in Luke, starting in verse 33, we begin to see Jesus finally expounding on what this new life that we've been called into looks like. And it says in verse 33, One day some of the people said to Jesus, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray regularly, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. Why are your disciples always eating and drinking? So basically what's been going on at this point is if you're a holy person, if you're one of the rabbis or if you're one of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, a scholar, one of the things that you do to let everybody else know how holy and how awesome you are is you go around doing these big, eloquent public prayers and you're going around and you're fasting. So they're sitting there on the street corners and like, you know, you're just walking by like, oh, sweet heavenly host. And you're just, No? Like, what's going on? And, and they're like doing all the King James, where thou presence dwelleth amongst thine people. Like, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make everybody else look at them and say, oh, this is a holy person. This is someone that really knows God. This is someone that's very acceptable to God. This is someone that God should bless because look at how they pray. They're committed to it. And the other thing that they're doing is they're going around and they're fasting. And when they're fasting, uh, I remember the first time I ever fasted in high school, I was such a little Pharisee. Because what they would do was they would try to make themselves look miserable so that everybody else knew they're fasting. So it's like, oh, my stomach. Oh, what's wrong? Are you sick? No, I'm fasting. <laughs> you know, I'm a holy man. I'm fasting. And so I totally did that in high school. I had gone like two hours without a snack. It's like second period. I'm in world history, and I'm like holding my stomach, you know? And like, you okay, Jeremy? Oh, I'm just fasting. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'm fasting. Why? I remember I didn't have an answer for it. Uh, because the why was because I wanted everybody else to think I was awesome. And this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing. They're fasting and they're praying publicly because they want everybody else to look at them and say, that's a holy person. That person, like, they're serious about God. I wish that I could be like them, but the status that they have achieved is unattainable for me. Certainly God should bless them among all people. This is what they're doing. And so when the, when the when the disciples hear some other people come up and like, hey, how come you guys aren't fasting like everybody else is, like all the other holy leaders? How come you guys aren't doing that? They're probably thinking in their minds like, oh, shoot, like our, it's over. Like we got to start fasting now because that's what we're supposed to do. If Jesus is the holy man, if he's the rabbi, if he's empowered by God, like one of the things that we're going to have to do now is fast so everybody else knows that we're holy and that we're righteous and everything else. So I imagine that's kind of a letdown for them. But Jesus responds to it in this way. In 30, verses 34 to 35, says, Jesus responded, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, if you're one of the people sitting here listening to him, you're probably like, 
Jesus, I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Like, this makes absolutely no sense to me. We're asking you about fasting, and you start talking about weddings. And what Jesus is doing is he's using a wedding analogy, which is something that is all through the Bible in the Old Testament. You see, when God comes to the people on Mount Sinai after they've been freed from Egypt, it says that he comes to them like a groom comes for his bride. The way that God reveals himself is that he's the groom that comes for us, that he loves us like a groom loves his bride. And this is this unconditional love, and there's this intimacy, there's this depth of relationship that exists and that God desires between himself and us as his people. As he says, so if you're at a wedding, are you going to be fasting at your wedding, or are you going to be feasting at your wedding? I've never been to a wedding yet where it was invited and it was a fasting-only reception. Like, you would save so much money on your wedding budget if you said, we're going to have some fasting. I might do that for my daughters. Hey, you know what? What better way to start out this wedding than to just really seek after Jesus through fasting? That's just being cheap. If you do that, like, if I, if I go to one of your weddings and you do that, I'm taking my gift back. I'm like, I'm out to get this. I don't get any food. You don't get a toaster from me. But you don't fast at a wedding because you're celebrating with the wedding party. You're there because you have a relationship with the groom. You're there because you have a relationship with the bride. And you want to go there and be, you're celebrating with them, their presence. You're celebrating the joy that's there with them. You would never fast at a wedding. But what happens if you're there and the groom is forcibly taken away? You're just sitting there at the wedding. Everybody's partying. It's a great time, one of the greatest moments of their life. People come in and they take the groom away by force and they take him out and they kill him. Like This just turned real bummer real fast. Are you going to continue feasting anymore? At that point, you won't want to eat. That's a part of mourning, is you lose your appetite. People that lose someone that's significantly close to them, where there's a deep love bond, oftentimes you'll notice they start losing weight because there's just no desire in them to eat anymore. This is what happens. Jesus says, right now, my disciples, they're not fasting because they're not going around trying to make themselves look like they're awesome because God doesn't care about that. Right now, they're partying and they're feasting because the groom, me, I'm here with them. How could they fast when I'm here with them right now? This is the party. And it's relational. Feasting is relational. He says, but the day is going to come when they will fast because the day is going to come when I'm taken away from them. He was talking about someday he was going to be taken away by force. He would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be crucified and he would be buried. And at that point, the disciples weren't feasting anymore. There was sorrow there was mourning that accompanied it, and they didn't eat. That was the time when the fasting would come. And what Jesus is showing us through all of this is that whether you're feasting, it's relational. And if you're fasting, it's not because you're trying to make yourself look awesome to other people. It's not because you're trying to make other people think that you deserve something from God because of how miserable you are. If you fast, it's because of relationship with Jesus. So this is the first thing that Jesus is telling us about our new life in him, is that it's all motivated by love. 
Jesus does affirm and say that you will pray. He says, when you pray, pray like this. When you fast, fast like this. Jesus isn't saying that you're never going to fast, that you're never going to pray. But what he's addressing is the motive behind it. Are we fasting and are we praying because we're trying to make ourselves look good to other people, which is a part of pride. Like we want to make ourselves look awesome, like we're holy, like I'm mean God, we're really close. Or is it, are you fasting and praying out of shame? Like, oh, I'm just so, you know, like, undeserving of anything from God. God, I, I'm just so terrible that maybe if I fast and if I pray enough that then you're going to listen to me or then I can be close to you, whatever it might be. That's not why we fast. That's not why we pray. We do these things because everything in the new life that God's called us to is motivated by love. Everything that we do, whether we're feasting or we're fasting, whether we're praying or whether we're reading our Bibles. Like everybody, I think here we can agree, if we're Christians, this new life that God's called us into, we should probably read our Bibles, right? That's something we should do. We should pray. We should fast. We should give. We should serve. We should do all of these different things. But if you take away the love motivation from that, it just becomes a list of rules of things that you have to do. And it doesn't matter how much self-discipline you have. If you have no heart connection behind what it is that you're doing, eventually you're going to drop off. Like one of the things that I do for Anna is I turn off the lights behind her. That's one of my primary jobs as a husband in this relationship is I, I walk around following her and turn off that light. Now I come over here. I'm going to turn off that light. And what I used to do is I used to get mad. Like, like, like what is wrong? Like, why can't you just turn off a light after yourself? Like, what's wrong with you? And it caused this frustration to boil up inside of me. Like, God, have you given me the most difficult person in the entire world to have to live with? And then God convicted me and he's like, you're being a baby, number one. Like, shut up and grow up, number two. But then I started realizing, you know what? Because I love my wife, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut and I'm going to follow her around and I'm going to turn off the lights after her. Because I made a vow that I was going to love her for better or worse. And if the worst part of this marriage is me having to turn off lights after her, like, that's a really great marriage. So do I enjoy turning off the lights all the time? No. It still kills a little piece of me Inside every time I have to do that. <laughs> but you know why I do it? Because I love my wife. You know why I mow our lawn? Because I want to assert my dominance over my neighbors. <laughs> and because I love my wife, and that's a way that I can serve her. So it's a love motive in my relationship with Anna, and it has to come down to being a love motive with Jesus. If we just have the list of rules, because God does have a holy calling on our lives. We're not just called to, okay, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, which means I'm going to keep living distant and far apart from you, but now I have this list of rules I'm going to follow. That's not what God's called you to. That's not the new life that he's called you to. The new life that he's called you to is one that's intimate in relationship with him. It's not God who's far removed from us. It's the God who's come to us. The groom has come for his bride. We're the bride. There's intimate, deep, personal, loving relationship that we can experience with him. And it's no longer us reading our Bibles and fasting and praying and giving and following Ten Commandments and all these other things because it's the list of rules that we have to do because if that's all it ever is, you will never do those things. But when your heart changes and you say, I love Jesus. I want to know Jesus more. Because I love Jesus, I'm going to do these things. It goes from everything that you're doing being a chore and a burden upon you to you finding delight in the things that you do to follow after Jesus. It brings freedom into it. 
It brings life into it. Too many times what we do is, okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow after you. Here's the new list of rules. Here's the holy call that you have on me. But I have no love for you. I have no relationship with you. You're distant and you're far removed from me. Nothing really has changed to my life except for now I have this holy call on me that I'm supposed to live out. That just adds a big burden onto my life that makes my life even harder than it was before. But when Jesus calls you as the groom and you respond as the bride, and you let deep love stir up inside of your heart for Jesus, this new life that he's called you to, it becomes a delight. It's not always easy. It's not always easy for me to do the things that I need to do for my marriage to be healthy and strong. But I do it out of a love motive. Not, well, I have to do this. Like it's another day having to love my wife for sickness and in sorrows and all these other things. It's, I love my wife. So when she's sick and she's throwing up, like, oh, here, let me hold your hair back. Oh, gosh. Like, if I didn't love my wife, I would not do that. None of you would do that day after day for someone you don't know or don't love. But when you love someone and there's that love motive inside of your heart, you'll do anything for them. You'll find a motivation that will enable you and empower you to do absolutely anything for them. And you'll be able to find joy and delight in that. Jesus has called us into relationship. That's the foundation of the life that he's called us to. Say, he's called us to enter into relationship with him. He's called us to know him deeply. He's called us to know him intimately. He's called us to experience his love for us and for us to express our love to him. And then it goes on in Luke 5, 36 through 37, Jesus continues to illustrate the new life we've been called to by saying, then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a garment and uses it to patch, sorry, tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. For then the new garment would be ruined and the new patch wouldn't even match the old garment. So Jesus is now switching from an analogy of marriage to an analogy of clothing. And if you get a hole in your favorite shirt or your favorite pair of jeans, or let's say jeans, I guess, because we don't patch shirts, but if you get a sweet, like if you're back in the day like me, you got a sweet pair of jerbos. Anybody from the 90s? Yeah. And you spent, they're one person. Spent all their money on jerbo jeans and you got a hole in them? Like, no! Because that was my life savings that went into buying that pair of jeans. What it's saying is you're not going to go out there and you're not going to buy a new pair of jerbos and like cut a hole out of them so that you can patch the old pair that you have. Why? Because it destroys the new pair of jeans that you have. Like how stupid would that be to go and cut a hole out of something that's new to patch something that's old? It destroys the new thing and then it doesn't even help the problem that you have. Because it won't match the old pair of pants that you have. And then another thing that happens in another translation of this, it talks about that the cloth will actually shrink. New cloth isn't shrunk yet. So when you put the, new, the patch from something new on your jeans, that will shrink and it will tear away. So you still have a hole in the old pair of jeans that you're trying to patch. And the new pair of jeans that you bought to patch them have also been destroyed. So you just don't do that. It's stupid. It doesn't help in any way. Well, clothing is an image of righteousness. Now, word righteousness, that means our right standing before God. Are we acceptable before God? Or are we condemned by God? The Bible is always talking about robes that are dirty, that are soiled, that are stained, that have holes in them. And what that speaks to is that's the righteousness that we have. Our standing before God isn't perfect. 
It has holes in it because we're broken people, we're flawed people, we're sinful people. We can't stand before a just, holy, and pure God and stand rightly before him because of our sinfulness. We all have holes in our clothes. And what it says is that Jesus gives us robes of righteousness. The solution to the fact that you stand sinful and condemned before God isn't that you need to go and start trying to find ways to patch yourself and to cover yourself, to make yourself, help, make yourself whole and to make yourself well so that now you become acceptable to God. The solution to it is found only in Jesus. And what Jesus did to make us acceptable, to make us righteous before God, was he came to the earth, he took all of the sins of all of humanity upon himself, and because he lived a pure and sinless life, because he was righteous, because he had right standing before the Father, he was able to go to the cross and pay the penalty for all of our sins. See, instead of trying to patch us up, which is what we're always trying to do. We're self-help people. We're, okay, I have low self-esteem, so this is what I need to do. I, I, I like this part of, like, oh, Jesus, you make me feel better about myself. This is what we're trying to do. We're always trying to patch up. Okay, I have this stain right here, so I got to get something to cover that. I have a hole over here. I got to put something over the hole to cover it up. We're trying to make ourselves righteous before God, but that can never happen. We can't patch ourselves up. We can't fix ourselves up. Jesus goes to the cross, dies for us, so that now it says that he gives us robes of righteousness. He doesn't just patch up the old clothes that we have. He gives us something new entirely, something that we didn't earn for ourselves, something that we didn't buy for ourselves. It's something that Jesus purchased for us by his blood on the cross. What we try to do is we try to make ourselves acceptable to God. This is so much a part of our story. Maybe you start to enter into that relationship with God. He calls you. You start following after him. You experience his love, and you want to love him. And then you become really painfully aware of how flawed you are. You say, like, man, I'm not like God. I'm broken. I'm messed up. What we do is we, we get to work and we try to fix ourselves. Okay, so I'm struggling with lust. So, okay, God, I got to work on this so that now I'm going to be acceptable to you. And until I overcome this sin issue in my life, I can't approach you. I can't know you deeply or intimately. I can't be used by you. I can't enjoy your presence. Or I have this pride issue that's going on. Or, or you know, like I'm greedy or I'm a slanderer or whatever it might be. But there's these different holes that we have in our clothing. A part of our broken, sinful condition as humans. And we keep trying to live, trying to do things to make ourselves better. Or what's even worse is sometimes we look at the gospel, we look at Christianity and what it is that Jesus has to offer us. Instead of just taking it and putting it on us, we say, I'm just going to cut a little hole out of that. Okay, I don't feel good about myself. I struggle with self-esteem issues. So I'm going to cut this part out where it says, I'm the head and not the tail. And I'm going to put that over me. I'm going to leave the rest of it there, but I want this, I'm the head, not the tail. Well, that doesn't actually fix your self-esteem issues. It doesn't actually fix your shame issues. And what it does is it destroys the free gift of God's grace that he's trying to give to you. What you do when you try to earn your own salvation, when you're trying to fix yourself up on your own, when you're trying to make yourself acceptable to God, is you're actually rejecting what it is that Jesus did for you on the cross. Here's the freedom in the life that we've been called to live in Jesus. Right now where you are, as broken, as flawed, as sinful, and as messed up as you may be, you're 100% acceptable. 
you are completely and unconditionally loved. You don't have to do anything to try to make yourself better. You don't have to do anything to try to fix yourself up. Jesus has done that for you. And when you say, God, I am sinful, I'm broken, I'm messed up, I'm not like you, would you forgive me? Jesus, I'm going to follow after you. I'm not going to live this old life anymore. I'm leaving these old, stained, messed up clothes behind. I want to put on the life that you give me. I want your righteousness. The minute you decide to do that, you are 100% pure, sinless, and stainless in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. And once that happens, there's no shame. What's the biggest killer of intimacy and relationships? Shame. It makes it so even if the other person loves you unconditionally and totally accepts you, if you feel shame towards them, you will never be able to have intimacy with them. You will put up walls and barriers and blocks that keep you from experiencing it. But when you understand how accepted and how loved you are, that there's nothing for you to be ashamed of in your life, that's removed from you. That weight's taken off of you. You become free and you're able to enter into intimacy. This is what God wants you to know this morning. You don't have to have any shame. You don't have to have any condemnation in your life and in your relationship with him because Jesus has paid the price for all of it. He's removed it all from you. He's given you a robe of righteousness that you are now right and pure in your standing before a holy God, completely accepted by him and completely loved. Accept the righteousness that Jesus gives you and stop trying to be self-righteous. Stop trying to make yourself acceptable to God and receive what it is that Jesus has given you. And then he goes on in Luke 5, 38, and he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine would burst the wineskins, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine must be stored in new wineskins. So wine, when it's new, there's a fermentation process that it goes through. And back then they did disgusting things like take like sheep stomachs and goat stomachs and tie them off, and that became the wineskin that you used. So if you take a new wineskin, you put the, the new wine in there, it's able to ferment, and because it's a new wineskin, it's able to stretch and expand with the fermentation process. If you take an old wineskin that is already stretched as much as it can, and you fill that thing up with new wine as the fermentation process begins, the wineskin will burst, so you, you're out of wineskin, and then all that new wine that you had, it just spills out on the ground. So the wine is ruined, and the wineskin is ruined. That's why you put old wine in old wineskins, and you put new wine in new wineskins. Now, this is how it applies to us. Wine is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Wineskin... That's a symbol of us, the life that we live. What Jesus is saying in this is that you used to live one way, and you were led by the desires of your flesh. And that's always talking about sinful desires. You were led by your carnal desires. Because we weren't born Christians. We weren't born filled with the Holy Spirit, understanding God's acceptance and his holy call in our life. 
We were born sinful, we were born broken and messed up, and we did a lot of things because we had sinful desires in us, so our sinful desires led us to do sinful things. That's just the way that it operates. And what Jesus is saying is that I want to pour the Holy Spirit out in you now. So now it's not that you're being led by the desires of your flesh, the carnal, sinful desires of your nature. He's saying that I want to fill you instead with the Holy Spirit so that your life is led by the Holy Spirit. And when you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're going to start doing the things that are the desires that God has for you. It'll be the natural desire inside of you. Have you ever met someone that just loves vegetables? Most likely they didn't start out that way. They loved Mike and Ike's. But then they, <laughs> their desire was to eat candy and steak and junk food. But then they started eating vegetables, and it was a struggle at first, but they kept eating them, and then this appetite developed inside of them, so now they love that. Like, Ann and I, we had fast food this week or something. I don't remember. It was a terrible, terrible mistake. Like, I used to eat fast food all the time, and it tasted so good in my belly, right? Like, I needed fat and cholesterol and insane levels of salt to feel good. And then I went a long time without eating that stuff, and I'm like, oh my gosh, how could I ever have eaten that junk in my entire life? It makes me feel like I'm going to die after I eat it. And this is what happens. It's like those desires for fast food, that's like the old life you used to live. You wanted things and you had desires and appetites for things that led to your destruction. And now Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we desire and are led to the things that bring life to us. We have a desire to live in a way that is generous instead of a way that's greedy. We have a desire inside of our hearts to live in a way that brings glory to Jesus instead of just following after the desires that bring glory to ourselves. But in order for that to happen, in order for us to be able to contain the Holy Spirit, the gift that God gives us, we can't keep living the way that we were living. There has to be a change in our hearts. There has to be a change in our desires because the Holy Spirit can't take up residence with the desires of your flesh and just have them battle it out all the time. If God pours out the Holy Spirit into someone that hasn't decided that they want to leave the old life behind, then eventually what's going to happen is your life's going to be destroyed and the Holy Spirit is not going to be the one that's leading you anymore. That gift will come to ruin inside of your life and you will continue to live following the sinful desires that are bringing destruction into you. So what Jesus is saying is, You've got to be new. There's a new life that you're being called to where you're going to have to leave behind the old sinful desires that you used to have so that you can follow after the new things that I'm calling to you that are born of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And he finishes it off by saying this in Luke chapter 5, 39. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. So what Jesus is saying is that this last piece of the new life is a rejection of the old life. You have an appetite for those old things that you used to do. And even though the new thing that God has poured out into you is so much better, and it leads you into God's provision, it leads you into God's blessing and his favor over your life, it leads you into the fulfillment of God's destiny for you, like, it leads you to really good things, but there's still this desire that's inside of us to want to keep living the way that we were living. If you think about a sin issue that you're struggling with in your life, what's easier to do? Just completely reject it and walk away from it to experience what God's called you to? Or is it easier to just give up on what God's called you to and just fully embrace the sin issue that you've been struggling with? It's always easier to embrace the old and return to the old. 
It seems fine to us. It's what we're used to. And that's why a part of this new life that God's called us to means that there has to be a rejection of the old life that we were living. I used to live this way. I used to follow after the sinful desires of my heart. But Jesus has called me to a new life. Jesus has called me to know him intimately and deeply. He's called me to have the motivation of love in everything that I do. God's made me completely acceptable. There's a righteousness that I have now that I didn't have to earn. I've been made acceptable to God. I can encounter his presence now without shame, without condemnation, without fear, and without guilt. I can have the Holy Spirit, God's very presence, dwelling inside of me and leading me into new things. But there has to be a point of decision in us. Which life am I going to live? Which desire am I going to follow? Is it going to be the desires of the flesh? They're going to lead to ruin. They're going to induce guilt and shame and condemnation into my relationship with Jesus. They're going to drive out the desires of the Holy Spirit in my life. Or am I going to follow after a life led by the Holy Spirit that walks away from the old sinful life I used to live so that I can know Jesus deeply and intimately, so I can know complete and total acceptance and so that I can have new desires from the Holy Spirit that are born inside of my life leading me into the fullness of God's call on me. That decision has to occur inside of us. And this morning, God wants you to decide which life is it that you're going to go after? Which future is it that you want? Because God's made himself and a new life made available to you. You guys just pray with me for a minute. Let's just really ask God, what is that he's speaking to us right now? Holy Spirit, you're here. You're speaking to us. For those of us that aren't following after you, you're the one that's calling us to follow. And to those of us who are following you, Jesus, you dwell inside of us, empowering us. And God, would you evaluate our hearts? Have we been living out of the motive of love in everything that we do in this life? Has following after you have been motivated by love? God, are we trying to make ourselves righteous? Is there something we're trying to do to make ourselves acceptable? Is there some fake wall that we've erected between us and you? God, are we being led by the desires of our sinful flesh? Or are we being led by the desires of the Holy Spirit dwelling richly in us? God, are we, are we living in a new life that you've called us to? Or are we still trying to fit a new life 
into the old way of life. And as God's been speaking to you about each of those questions, He's calling you to make this a moment in your life where everything changes. If you've been distant from God, then today, draw near to Him. Believe in your heart that you can have intimate and deep relationship with Him. Decide to take that step towards Him, to enjoy the groom. If you've been letting things in your life make you think that you're not acceptable before God, and that you've got to fix yourself up, and today decide that you're not going to be self-righteous anymore, that you're going to accept the righteousness that Jesus won for you on the cross, and that it's His blood that makes you of right standing before our Father, that you don't have to live with guilt and condemnation and shame anymore, but you can live with intimacy with God. If you've been following after the desires of your flesh instead of following after the desires of the Holy Spirit in you, and the, the way that you repent this morning is to say, God, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. Because I love you, because I'm motivated by love, I'm leaving these old things behind. And I'm going to follow the desires of the Holy Spirit inside of my life. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just give you new desires, He gives you new power. Before you used to fall into all the sins you always did because you were powerless to overcome the temptation. But part of the gift of the Holy Spirit in you is that now you have the power to overcome and to walk away from the old things that ensnared you and that have held you captive for so long. You have power from God to overcome. And part of your repentance this morning is, God, forgive me and empower me. So I'm going to live following now and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was that God was speaking to you, this morning he's here because he loves you. He's here because this is the life that he's called us to. And this is the life that he's empowering you to live. So Father, we thank you that there is a new life for us. Thank you that you speak to us. God, for every person here, wherever it was that they needed to reorient their life this morning. God, first of all, thank you that you spoke to us, that you revealed to us. God, forgive us. God, encourage our hearts. Strengthen us. Because, God, we want to live our lives for you. We want to be like Levi that walks out of the tax booth and comes after you into the fullness of the new life that you have for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite my prayer partners to come up right now. They're just going to be on the, uh, this front section on the outsides of the aisles, and you can come up and stand there so people can see you. And if there's anything that we can pray with you about today, this is my encouragement. Come, let us pray for you. Jesus moves miraculously every single week in response to the prayers of his people, and we'll stay here as long as it takes because we want to see Jesus do something miraculous in your life. If not, Go out there, drink some coffee, make some friends, and even more than that, this week, enjoy Jesus. Enjoy his love. Enjoy the groom. And let a motivation of love empower everything that you do. God bless. We'll see you next week.